morning. Hello. We're starting now. <laughs> um, we, this morning, are going to keep kind of talking about this series that we've got going on, Who Can God Use or Who Does God Use? Um, Jacob kind of gave away the answer last week. The answer is everyone. God can use everyone. God does use anyone. And this morning, I'm particularly focusing on one of my personal favourite stories in the Bible, Esther. The story of Esther. Sorry, I'm not talking to Esther. Esther, off your phone. Come on. No, I'm kidding. You're good. Um, we're t- looking at the story of Esther. Now, I was kind of talking about it during the week and thinking like, is it just one of my favourites because I'm a girl? And it was like one of the ones that we were taught, like, you're a girl, you're going to love this one. It's named after a girl. The hero is Mordecai. No, no, no. Um, It's actually an awesome story. I read it again, obviously, during the week. I've been reading it. And I forgot how entertaining it is. Has anyone read it recently? Like in the last year or so, maybe? No? Great. (laughs) This is going to be good. I've got... Look... I've got quite a lot planned. We're going to pretty much read through the whole thing, the whole story. It's like 10 chapters. <laughs> we're, just, we're going to kind of skim a little bit. Um, feel free, if you want, to open up your real Bibles or digital Bibles to the book of Esther. I am going to have some like excerpts that I'll specifically read from on the screen if you just want to follow like that um, from the New Living Translation, NLT, if you want to match it on your phone. You don't have to, whatever. Um, and then the rest I'll just splice with the um, Sarah Hately International Translation. Um, that's a good one. It's a good one. Um, All right, but a little bit about Esther. Um, Yes, it's very entertaining, but it is an historical narrative. It is a piece of history. It is a story that is also recorded in other history books. It's not just in our Bibles. Um, Anything else I want to talk about? No, the rest I'm going to get to as we read through, if that's fine. So, let's get started. If you've cracked open your Bible to chapter 1 of Esther, we're going to start from verse 1. And this one I'm reading straight from the NLT. These events that we're about to talk about happened in the days of King Xerxes who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. Now, one thing about King Xerxes, he's a Persian king, I've already said that, King Xerxes I. Some translations of the Bible, depending on what you've got in front of you, they give him the name King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. My Bible at home has that. It's just that was the original like Hebrew name that was written in the Bible. They matched it up to the history books of King Xerxes the first. So he's kind of named both things. So if your Bible says something else, it's fine. It's all good. Um, Also, Xerxes is a great name. So I'm going to use the name Xerxes as I read today. Is anyone like expecting a baby boy anytime soon? Because Xerxes, consider it. That's a good one. I like it. Um, I've got a map to look at quickly as well before we uh, continue. There we go. 
bit of a map of the Persian Empire. What did it say? 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. I'm hoping that this map is reflective of that because geography is not my strong suit. Um, but uh, the red word, not Persian Empire, Shushan. Shushan. That's um, the city of Susa that was mentioned before, also known as Shushan. But a quick side note, I'm sorry, I can't help myself. Has anyone seen Johnny English 2? Reborn, Johnny English Reborn. And he's on the plane and that man comes out with the name badge Susan. And, um, you know, his mate, Johnny English's mate's going, I don't think that's Susan. And Johnny English is like, ah, no, I believe it's pronounced Shushan. That's such a good one. Thank you, Shushan. I love that. Anyway, Shushan, the city of Shushan, or Susa, as it says in the NLT. I will continue with this Bible now, I promise. I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm, I'm a, I have the mind of a child sometimes. I just get distracted. Okay. King Xerxes, so we've read verse 1 and 2. If you're looking on your Bibles, you'll see King Xerxes is hosting a celebration which lasts 180 days. That is a huge party. And this event was basically just to show off his wealth. It says um, he wants to show his opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendour of his majesty. He's just a big show-off. That's all this is. And after that celebration of 180 days, he then has a feast, a banquet, for another seven days where he invites everyone on this map. He invites everyone from the greatest to the least, it says. Again, it is as lavish as you can possibly get. And um, the king even gave an edict for everyone to drink as much alcohol as they wanted, let the alcohol never stop flowing. That is the edict. Everyone drink and drink and drink. So verse 10 says, On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehman, Bixtha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, some more baby name inspiration, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. Again, a big show-off. He wants to get his beautiful wife in. What could go wrong? A drunk king <laughs> sends for his wife so he can be shown off like the rest of his possessions. Great. Love it. Queen Vashti refuses to come. The king gets furious. Why won't my wife listen to me? What's going on? Um, he consults his advisors. They start panicking. They're saying, like, well, if the king's wife doesn't do what she's told, what are our wives going to do? Oh, no. Um, <clears throat> so this is the point where they put out a, a decree to find a new queen. Verse 20, when this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere will receive the proper respect from their wives. Hooray! Celebrate! Husbands are finally getting the respect they deserve. I was so worried. Okay. That's chapter one. That's kind of what's going on at the moment. And chapter two is where we meet Esther. Okay. Esther. 
So the king's attendants searched the empire to find the most beautiful young women. They're brought to the fortress at Susa or to Shushan to give them beauty treatments, which sounds glamorous, but it is not. I'm not going to go into it a lot because some of you might not be as keen to hear this as other people, but this whole process of finding the king a new wife is one of the most degrading and demeaning experiences for any woman that was involved. Really, really just, I don't care about your rights, not that they had rights at the time, don't care about what you want, what you're um, comfortable with. It was just things forced upon them. Not nice, you can read it on your phone in front of you in your Bible if you want a bit more information, but essentially a horrible process that I personally feel sick thinking about being involved in. Um, We're introduced in this story then to a Jewish man named Mordecai. Um, This is a man whose family had been exiled from Jerusalem um, and he had a young cousin named Hadassah, a name we don't hear very often, um, because we know Hadassah as Esther, uh, the title character of this story. So Mordecai raised Hadassah basically as his daughter, even though they were cousins. I'm assuming there was a bit of an age difference. Um, now, again, another fun fact that I just wanted to mention. Esther, or Hadassah, Esther, same person, her father was Abihail. He died... His wife died, that's why she was um, orphaned. Abihail's father was Eliah. Eliah's father was Jesse. Do we remember the name Jesse from last week? Maybe. Jesse was also the father of King David. So there's a relation there between, uh, not Jacob, (laughs) King David, who Jacob talked about last week, and Esther. David is sort of Esther's uncle. Um... Anyway, moving on again, I I told you I'd get sidetracked. So Esther's brought in for this uh, parade of young women and she was treated favourably and Mordecai advises her, do not tell anyone that you are Jewish. Just keep that under wraps, go by the name of Esther, Um, just don't let anyone in on that. I'm going to skip over the next few kind of unseemly details, but again, feel free to give it a read if you like. Um, And Esther, in the end of this chapter, becomes queen. She's continued um, to keep her family background a secret and continued following Mordecai's advice. And I'm just going to read from verses 21 to 23. And this is actually a little bit about Mordecai. Right after Esther's made queen, this is what happens to Mordecai. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of history of King Xerxes' reign. Remember this book. Just remember how it says this was all recorded in the book of history of King Xerxes' reign. We're going to come back to that. It was recorded in a book. That's what it was called. All right. 
I know this might not seem like the most interesting preach in the world. She's just telling us a story straight from the Bible. But I promise when we get to the end, I'm actually going to ask kind of for your thoughts about this. Uh, we, we are going through the whole thing for a reason, I, I promise. Um, but right now, we're up to chapter 3. King Xerxes promotes a man named Haman above all the other nobles. And all the other nobles are commanded, you must bow and show proper respect to Haman. I'm going to... Spoiler alert, Haman's the bad guy. We don't like Haman, he's not a nice dude. Um, as he's walking past one time, Mordecai, Esther's father, adopted father, Mordecai refuses to bow. Remember, Mordecai's a Jewish man. He is not interested in bowing to anyone other than his God. Um, so there's only one power Mordecai is going to bow to, and it's not Haman. And this enrages Haman. And when Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jewish man, and this is the reason that he won't bow, Haman decides to exact revenge on Mordecai. But because Haman is an um, anti-Semite, and Haman hates all Jewish people, it's not enough to just get back at Mordecai. No. Hamish. uh, Hamish! (laughs) Sorry, Hamish. Where's Hamish? (laughs) Sorry. Haman. Haman decides to exact revenge on all of the Jews. All of them. Across that whole empire that we saw. Because Mordecai refuses to bow. Haman decides, I'm going to get back at all of the Jews. And the king just agrees to it. Because he he trusts him. And he goes, um, oh, sorry, this is verse 13. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. Mordecai refuses to bow. So Haman plans genocide, like literally ethnic cleansing, the wiping out of a whole people. Not a good dude, right? The city of Susa fell into confusion is how this chapter ends up. This is a massive problem, obviously, in the story. This is the part where you're waiting for something incredible to happen, for a saviour to come along, right? Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. After this, through a messenger, Mordecai starts asking Esther for help, pleading with Esther for his help. And he says in verse 13... Don't think that for a moment, because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. He's reminding her, you're a Jewish person as well. This is going to come out. You will also be killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for all the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. 
Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Maybe the most quoted kind of verse from this story. Have we heard that before? Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Yeah. So this is a man with great faith in his God. He's telling Esther, you can help us. You can use the situation that you're in, your position of power, to save us, to save God's people. But then he says, even if you don't, like our God is good and he will find another way to save us, even if you don't, but your family will be killed in the process. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? Who knows if this, what I would call a horrible situation that Esther has been put in, these terrible things that have been done to her, who knows if you've been through that for such a time as this? Esther agrees to try to help the Jewish people. All right, we're nearly there. Is anyone getting a little bit, I don't know, tired, a bit distracted? We've been looking at the same story for a little while. Are we okay? We're still in it? Okay, thank you for nodding to make me feel good. Chapter 5. Esther puts on her robe and walks into the inner court of the palace. And the king is sitting on his throne and welcomes Esther in. The king says, What do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Already, he's in a good mood. He's happy to give Esther whatever she wants. Um, But instead of giving her request right away, she says, "Uh, what I want is for you to come to a banquet that I've prepared. You and Haman come to a banquet I've prepared um, and then I'll, I'll tell you what I really want. So they go to this banquet and the king says, now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Great. Uh, Esther says again, I'm preparing a banquet tomorrow night and I want you and Haman to come to that one and then I'll tell you what I, I really want. She's being strategic. This is not a strategy I've ever heard of, but she's being strategic and inviting him to banquets, I guess making him feel really special or, or loved, I don't know. Then um, she's going to explain everything. So as Haman's leaving this, he's feeling pretty chuffed. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's been invited to a banquet with just the king and the queen. He must be really important. He can't wait, wait, sorry, he can't wait to get home and brag to his wife. But on his way out, he walks past Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow to him again. Haman gets his knickers in a knot. All right, when he gets home, Haman gathers his wife and his friends because this is the kind of person he is. And in verse 12, he says, uh, or before this, he starts boasting about everything. I'm so rich. Look at how many children I have. And then he says, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Ugh, Mordecai. Um, So Haman's wife makes a suggestion. She hears this, she hears Haman having a bit of a whinge about Mordecai venting about how he keeps ruining his day. Does anyone have someone like this at home, like a, a child or a parent or a partner or a sibling 
They start venting about work or about school. And they can't, like, they tell you about this guy that just keeps bugging him. And every time they bring up that guy, you're like, oh, yeah, I hate that guy. You've never met him. Uh, <laughs> but this person that, you know, your, your mate's venting about, uh, it just, you know, starts getting to you. I hate him. Uh, maybe you should say this next time. That'll show him. <laughs> um, that's what Haman's wife does here. He's hearing about, sorry, she's hearing about Mordecai. And how annoyed Mordecai is making Haman. And she makes the suggestion. Are you ready for this? Haman, why don't you set up a 75 foot tall sharpened pole and impale Mordecai on it? Right. I was expecting some sort of a reaction to that. 75 foot tall sharpened pole and impale Mordecai on it. Um, yeah, all right. Um, Haman sets it up. He's like, that's a great idea. Yes, I will set that 75-foot sharpened pole and I will impale Mordecai on it. Good one. That's where we're at in this story. I'm telling you, it's a very interesting story. Um, okay, we're here. We're in the last kind of part of this story. Do you remember that history book that I got you to remember before? The history of King Xerxes and the Persian Empire, whatever. So verse 1 of chapter 6 says this. That night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of history of his reign so it could be read to him. I found this very entertaining that the king can't sleep, so he gets a book of himself that's been written about himself and gets someone to read it to him. How good's that? Um, one of the records that's read to him um, is about the time that Mordecai tipped off the king about those people that were plotting to kill him, way back in chapter 2. Um, Mordecai hears this story and is like, oh yeah, that's right. What did we ever do for Mordecai? How did we thank him? And his attendants say, we didn't. We didn't do anything for him. So king, the king brings Haman in um, and says in verse 6, Haman, what should I do to honour a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honour more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honour someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honour is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honour. Oh, man. Haman's a humble dude. Um, and then verse 10, the king says, Excellent! Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. This is so good. I love this story. <sighs> a bit humiliating for poor Haman. All right. It finally comes time for Esther's banquet. Esther, Haman and the king are there, <clears throat> sorry, and while they're drinking their wine, King Xerxes says, tell me what you want, Queen Esther, what is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. I think that's his um, motto, what do you call it, his little slogan. Um, 
And Queen Esther replied in verse 3, If I have found favour with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who will kill, slaughter and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing a king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, "'Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes?' And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signalling his doom." Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. (sighs) We just went full circle. This story is brilliantly written. After this, uh, Mordecai's um, given the power to actually send out a new decree, just like Haman had done with that one to annihilate all the Jews. Um, And the new decree, it couldn't revoke the first one, that was illegal, but the new decree said all of the Jews in any nation can actually unite, defend themselves. You're allowed to kill anyone that tries to kill you, basically. And verse 17 says, In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. So on March 7th, the Jews overpowered their enemies and a Jewish festival called Purim began. And this is a festival still celebrated by Jewish people today. This huge festival about how they were saved, their lives were spared, this incredible story that happened, still celebrated every year according to the Jewish calendar. That's it. That's the story of Esther. Wasn't that a good one? I'm sorry for dragging you through a whole story if that is not what you came for this morning, but I do have a question for you about that story. Where or when, where or when did you see God at work in that story? Or in what moments did you see God intervening, moving, speaking to the people in that story? Now, please don't hate me, but I actually want you to answer that question with someone near you. I'm going to give you a minute or two, but I just want you to maybe turn and chat with someone and just have a very quick discussion. Where did you notice God moving in that story? Where did you see him at work? Is that cool? (laughs) Great. All righty. What were some of our 
thoughts? Is anyone willing to share anything? I don't want to make anyone. have to share but anyone else want to throw something out Thank you. That was a point, look, I didn't get into it, but that it actually wasn't okay for Queen Esther to walk into the king's courts without being called and he had every right to kill her. If she walked in there, he could have killed her on the spot because she was not allowed to do that. But she did it anyway. She was brave and trusted in her God. Yeah, look, one of, the, one of the strange things about the book of Esther, if you've read it through before or you might have noticed it just then, is that the name of God is not mentioned at all. God is never mentioned. We never hear the word God. We never explicitly hear, even Mordecai when he's saying, look, deliverance is going to come from somewhere, even if you don't help us. He never says God, but we, we read it, right? We saw it. We, it's, it's unusual for a biblical story and a story especially about God's people, about the Jews. And I've, as I've already said, it's not a parable. It's not a story that was made up to teach us a lesson or to help us understand something. This is a historical recount. It's an account from the history books. And yes, it's written brilliantly and if you're into literary analysis like you'll have a field day with this one it is so clever the way that this recount has been structured and the author makes some really really clever choices and I think one of the things that I found powerful was that as I was reading this story a couple of times during the week the author not mentioning the name of God made me search for where God was in the story made me really look For where was God moving? We know that just because we can't see it doesn't mean God isn't at work. There were a lot of double negatives in that sentence. Let's go again. Even when we can't see it, God is still working. Even when we can't feel it, God is still working. 
We know that. God had a plan for the Jewish people and we saw Mordecai have so much faith in God's plan that he tells Esther deliverance will arise from some other place. God will rescue his people even if you choose not to be part of that plan. But God wants us to be part of that plan, right? He chooses to partner with us over and over again throughout history, throughout the whole Bible. Now God chooses to partner with us to build his kingdom. I just want to point out one last thing. I want to point out something about the way that Mordecai was behaving when he said these words to Esther. Because this is, I think, an incredible example of what it's really like to live a life of faith. I often wonder, what, what does that look like? Because, like, how do I act like I'm always trusting in God? Like, if I'm in hardship, do I just have to smile and just trust God and not be sad and not worry? Like, do I just have to suck it up and say, it's okay, the Lord will provide? Is that what my life is meant to look like? Because it doesn't look like that at all. But in chapter 4, when Mordecai is communicating with Esther, when he said, don't worry, deliverance is going to come from some other place, even if you're not part of that plan. At the start of that chapter, it says, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes with grief. He put on burlap and ashes and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. He was grieving loudly and unashamedly and still trusting in God through that grief. Our lives might look like that a lot. He didn't put on a brave face. He didn't pretend like he wasn't struggling. He was struggling loudly and clearly and trusting in God and having a massive faith in his God. I think that says a lot about what it might look like sometimes to live a life in faith. It doesn't mean pretending like bad things don't happen and it doesn't mean that life will always be amazing. It means sometimes we are crying and praying and trusting all at once. (laughs) We see in this story God's promises remaining in place for his people, even in the face of possible annihilation. And without even mentioning his name, this story speaks loudly and clearly to the providence of God. Does anyone else agree with that? All right. I've already asked you, where did you see God at work in this story? I'm going to ask you one more question, and you will have to talk to someone again. As I said, the author of this story really made me go searching for God in the story of Esther. And when I searched for him, I found him a lot, many times. He was all over this story. But another thing that reading this story made me do is go back searching in my own life for where I've seen God at work. Where have I seen God at work in my story? Where have I seen him provide for me? In what moments have I seen God intervene or move? And this is the question that I have for you as well. Start, have, uh, start having a think right now because I'm going to ask you to share it with someone that you're sitting with 
because I think it's so important to remember these moments, isn't it? It's so important to testify God's goodness when we see it in our lives and it's so important to share that with other people. So again, only for a minute, maybe a minute and a half, where have you seen God at work in your story? I want you to just share that with someone. It can be very brief. Share that with someone. Ask someone, where have you seen God at work? Thank you for sharing and discussing. If I'm cutting you off, I'll be done in like a minute. So (laughs) feel free to continue this conversation then. I just want to pray. That's all I want to do. God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the same God that Mordecai had faith in. You're the same God today. Thank you that you have a plan and that you want to involve us in that plan. You don't want to force something upon us. You just want to build your kingdom here and you want to partner with us to do that. And thank you that you don't want us to be like Esther or like King David or, or Mordecai. You love us exactly as we are and you will work with whatever we are willing to surrender to you. You've created us with passions and with gifts and your Holy Spirit equips us every time we ask. And we thank you for your incredible plan to transform our neighbourhood, to bring your kingdom here to earth and that we can serve you to be a part of that. Um, Lord God, for those of us who feel sometimes like we don't have anything to offer or we feel like, you know... What could I possibly do with what I have? God, I pray that you break that, that that way of thinking, that you completely break that, that you show us how loved we are, how um, beautifully created we are, and that you continue to remind us of how you have moved in in our lives, how you have worked, how you have provided for us um, in our individual lives, in the lives of our church. Remind us of all of those times. We do not want to forget. We don't want to give credit to anything else or anyone else other than you, God. God, we love you. I I pray that you bless all of us this week as we head out, um, as we're going back to work or going um, home and raising our children or as we're going to school or whatever our week looks like, God. I just pray that you speak through us all the time, that you help us to show people what your love really looks like, help us to see each other the way that you see us, as your beautiful creations. God, we just love you and we want to emulate Jesus. We want to be Jesus to the people in our lives. We don't want to be Esther to the people in our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask that you shape us to look like Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, it was amazing to see you. I'm sorry that I talked for a long time, but I just really wanted to go through that. So thank you (laughs) for being here, for sharing, for discussing. I hope you have an amazing week.